What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Everyone and welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. Welcome to our first new edition of 2020, the new decade. I know some people don't think it's the new decade, but if the AP says it's the new decade, that's what I'm going with. I follow AP style in all aspects of my life, unfortunately. (laughs) This is Lindsay Gibbs. I am the author of the newsletter Power Plays, which I would love you all to subscribe to because I'd like to start 2020 off with a bunch of new subscribers. So let's start with a self-promo. Go to powerplays.news. It is a newsletter all about women's sports. I guarantee if you love Burn It All Down, you will love Power Plays. All right, (laughs) that's enough self-promo. Joining me today for Burn It All Down, it's the one and only Jessica Luther, (laughs) freelance reporter and author and PhD candidate or PhD candidate, candidate. Candidate. PhD candidate in Austin, Texas. Jess, it is just you and I for this first new edition. The team has handed the keys over to us, so <laughs> I'm I'm excited. How are you doing? Me too. Happy New Year. I am great. Happy to be here. You know what? We've got to be optimistic. And Tom Brady threw a pick six to end a touchdown no. game uh, to, to end a playoff game. So, and Amir is not here, so we can really <laughs> really enjoy it <laughs> in Foxborough and everything. Huh? In Foxborough. In Foxborough. Yeah. So I just do feel like, I mean, in reality, we all know what's going on in the real world. The 2020 is not off to a good start, but I'm just savoring that for for right now. All right. So today's episode, we are going to talk all about the fact that DJ Durkin, former Maryland coach, is back in the coaching ranks. He's been hired at Ole Miss. Jess and I have some feelings about that. Amira interviews Jess McDonald about her forthcoming podcast and what it's like to be a professional athlete and mom. Of course, Jess McDonald had quite the 2019, winning both the World Cup and the National Women's Soccer League Championship with the North Carolina Courage. So I'm so excited to hear that. I haven't listened yet. And then we're going to talk a little bit about David Stern's death and kind of takeaways from his legacy, particularly as they pertain to women's sports and the WNBA. Before we get into all that exciting thing, one more big plug for our Patreon. We are starting our third year of the podcast, which is mind-boggling. Halfway through this, we'll hit uh, our third anniversary in about May, I believe. The only way we can keep doing this completely independent, ad-free, intersectional feminist sports podcast every single week is because... You all support us through our Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com slash burn it all down, each month there'll be an extra segment from us, Patreon only segment. There are also sometimes some behind the scenes videos so you can get to know us a little bit better. 
And, you know, we have some merch giveaways, things like that. Lots of exciting things going on in the Patreon. But really, it just helps us not have to spend anything out of pocket. And 2020, as I said in our Best Of episode, is going to be the year we hire a producer. I'm putting it out there. (laughs) (laughs) And you all are going to help us get over that hump. So thank you in advance. As little as $2 a month will get you some of these big perks. And, I mean, really help us thrive in this new year because I think we're going to be needed. Yeah. Okay. Now, for real, before we get going, there were a lot of things we could have talked about at the top of the show today. But Jess, did you see any of our royal wedding? And by our royal wedding, I, of course, mean the wedding of Ashlyn Harris and Allie Krieger. (laughs) Well, yes, because my favorite of the social medias is Instagram. And I feel like this was like Instagram. It was the Instagram wedding. Yeah, I just have to say, they looked amazing. They just looked, there was this picture. So people had the exclusive, I think, on the images. So I was looking at them last night and like Allie was in this form-fitting white gown with the veil and Ashton was in a tux, but it was like beaded and fringed. Like you just, it's so, they're so beautiful. I just loved looking at them. Yeah. It was just gave me a lot of joy. Rapino in a suit. Same person made great. Her tux that made Ashlyn's. I read that Cindy LaRue, who also looked amazing, she did a reading at the wedding of the SCOTUS decision on marriage equality. She did, and she was the official. She married them. She which married is so cool. them. She oh, married I missed them. That. Oh, wow. <laughs> she was the official. And they had one know. of those rainbow cakes where when you cut into it, it's six layers and it's a rainbow. How sweet is that? Yeah, Everything about it. And, and every all of their tables were dedicated to a big. Oh, that's right. A, a trailblazer for human rights, particularly LGBTQ rights, which I thought was amazing. And, you know, I actually talked to them a little bit about their upcoming wedding when I was interviewing them at an Athlete Ally event when they were getting an award. This was a couple months ago. And one of the things that they told me was that they were really trying to make sure that all of their decisions for their wedding were very purposeful and ethical and everybody they worked with for their wedding um, really believed what they believed and trying to make it personal in that way, which I thought was really beautiful, you know, only working with vendors and with makeup artists and, you know, you know, run the gamut that really supported the causes that that they believe in. And it seems like it was really, truly a celebration of love. And I think that there has been so much progress over the past couple of years, I think it can be easy to overlook how significant is that two women on the U.S. women's national team just got married. And it, it was everywhere, you know, it was Exclusive everywhere. pictures people and people, was, yeah. People was covering it. It was Instagrammed everywhere. Um, it was it was really a beautiful celebration of love. And I don't want to overlook. I think that's a that's a big, you know, it, it's it's an important moment. And I I just it, they were they're so pretty. <laughs> they really are. And can I just say, so Ali's brother Kyle gave a speech, and I just wanted to quote part of what he said to them. He said, "quote." Your love is a beacon of hope for so many gay young people who don't always get to see happy endings reflected back to us. You are our happy ending. 
That's so good. I'd also like to say that give a shout out to Adriana French, the U.S. Women's National Team goalie. She also got married to her girlfriend. They looked beautiful last too. month. Oh. They looked beautiful. She had on. Oh my god, she looked phenomenal in this this suit that she was wearing. And she also graduated from college last year, last month. So oh big month god. for Adriana Ad. So want to give her a shout out. I pretty much spent all last month watching Hallmark movies from bed. So. <laughs> <laughs> Just a normal continuation out in the real world. Normal continuation. <laughs> All right, let's do this. Okay, so over the break mm. last week, news came out that Ole Miss had hired DJ Durkin. Jess, why is that problematic? <laughs> Get us going here. <laughs> yeah, why is that problematic? Such an easy question with such a huge answer. I want to mention that the new Ole Miss coach is Lane Kiffin, who was a failure of a coach at USC, the Oakland Raiders, and Tennessee before he was hired away from Florida Atlantic to be the coach at Ole Miss. His story alone is worth unpacking, I think, but we're going to focus on the fact that DJ Durkin was hired by Kiffin last week. Durkin, we've talked about his tenure at Maryland multiple times over on this podcast because... On May 29th, 2018, 19-year-old Jordan McNair, an offensive lineman for the Terps, collapsed after a particularly grueling workout with the team. McNair eventually died in the hospital from heat stroke, but his death was preventable, and no one under Durkin that day did a damn thing to help McNair. According to McNair's family, an hour went by between McNair having a seizure and anyone calling 911. In the wake of damning journalism from ESPN later that summer following McNair's death about the toxic culture of the football program under Durkin, Durkin was placed on paid administrative leave and the school launched an investigation. And even though the investigation found that same toxic culture, Durkin was reinstated briefly before public pressure finally led to his firing. At the time of his reinstatement, Jordan's father said, quote, I feel like I've been punched in the stomach and somebody spit in my face. Also at that time, because I feel like this matters to understanding college football generally, Will Muschamp, currently the head coach at South Carolina, but who was Durkin's boss when Muschamp was the head coach at Florida, he was asked about the line between coaching and abuse. He took no time at all to remember Jordan McNair, the young man who died. Instead, Muschamp did a full-throated defense of Durkin, saying Durkin is, quote, an outstanding football coach, but he's also an outstanding husband and a father, and he treats people with respect. Then Nick Saban hired Durkin as a consultant for Alabama. When that became public news, Saban claimed instead that Durkin was just doing some professional development with the team. But maybe some listeners will remember Brenda's inspired burn from episode 137 a few weeks back when she torched Saban's quote-unquote internship program to help fired coaches get all the money they can from their previous places of employment. Saban is in the business of saying little generally and doing much to prop up the careers of other coaches, even ones like Durkin. And now Durkin has a brand new job in charge of teenage football players all over again. That's unconscionable. I believe I've said it on this program before, but he should have to get a different job now. He should no longer be able to coach. He's not even that good at it. The athletic director at Ole Miss, Keith Carter, put out a statement saying exactly what all these mofos say when they hire someone controversial, quote, the university conducted a thorough background check on Coach Durkin, and we connected with several high, highly respected college football coaches, administrators, and school officials about their experiences with him. Carter goes on to say that everyone loves Durkin, cites Durkin's apparently, quote, strong character and work ethic, and if you can fucking believe it, 
quote, his positive impact on the communities and institutions where he was previously employed. Jordan McNair died a preventable death in a toxic program that Durkin oversaw that should be enough. I feel like there are so many things here. Okay, so we have Durkin's horrific history, college football caring very little about the players who actually play the sport, Lane Kiffin's continued failure upward, the way college football coaches and administrators constantly rehabilitate the reputation of people who don't deserve it, that Ole Miss itself is a mess of a space anyway. Anyone remember Hugh Freeze? We have talked about him on here before. Oh, jeez. Um, Lindsay, where do you want to start with this? I want to start by going in a little bit more about what Durkin did at the University of Maryland. Because first of all, this is the tiniest piece here, but he didn't win that many football games. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> like, he's not that good. Like, 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 I just, I just do feel like it's worth mentioning, even though that shouldn't even matter in this context. But like, there's not even the fallback that he was a successful football coach. No, Maryland wasn't that good at football. Under no, him. They've I been better without 10, him. 10 and 15. And then, yeah, they've been yeah. better since he left. Yeah. So, you know, put that to the side, but it, you know, it's worth holding because like, a lot of times worth, it'll, it'll like, be- what the, is the justification if, if it's not what's the justification? even that? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's not even the justification. But, you know, one of the things that got me was when Jordan McNair's parents told reporters that DJ Durkin, the head coach during recruiting, he did that thing that we- see in movies that we hear about where he went and sat in their living room to recruit Jordan McNair and assured him that assured the parents that he would treat Jordan as if Jordan was one of his kids and make sure that nothing happens to him. That's what Tanya Wilson, McNair's mother told HBO sports, but her 19 year old son died two weeks after suffering heat stroke during a practice on May 29th. So he didn't take care of them. Jordan McNair showed signs of heat stroke. If his heat stroke had been taken seriously, if his pain as a young black man had been taken seriously, he would still be alive today. But the coaching staff that reported directly to DJ Durkin didn't take that pain seriously. They didn't follow any proper protocols. And a death that was easily preventable happened. You know, it occurred. So... The report that Maryland did, the Maryland Board of Regents did on this McNair's death clearly showed, as you just mentioned, a toxic culture in the Maryland football program. Among one things, so Court, the strength and conditioning coach, was actually in charge of the practice. So he was the one who, but he directly reported to Durkin. So in this report that uh, was done. Durkin admitted that he would often hear court using the, I don't even want to say it, you know, the pussy and bitch and F words and homophobic slurs at the players, but he let it go because he didn't hear that language directed at specific individuals. Durkin also acknowledged that he heard about the incident where court took a box of food out of a player's hands and threw it against the wall. But Durkin did not believe that court crossed any lines. So Durkin program specifically ran through fear, intimidation, and bullying on and off the field. At one point in the report, which this is what really sticks out to me, this culture included showing videos of serial killers 
drills entering eyeballs and bloody scenes with animals eating animals during breakfast is a way to motivate and entertain players. That's what Durkin said. He said that these horror movies were sometimes shown at breakfast to motivate and entertain players. What is college football? Like, what, what is, is it that we're football? upholding What is here? any of this? Yeah. And I mean, I don't know how you can't see a direct correlation between that culture and one where McNair was pushed well beyond his limits during practice. His anguish was not taken seriously. He was afraid to complain because he didn't want to be seen as weak and his humanity was completely overlooked and he died. Like there's just a direct correlation there. And there is absolutely no way that Durkin should be able to coach again, especially since he has not shown any true remorse, taken any true responsibility, done anything that says he's actually learned from any of this. None of these statements that we've been hearing have been about how DJ Durkin has changed as a coach as a result of the McNair stuff. And once again, these investigations that Old Miss has done remind me so much of, let's say, the investigation that Tampa Bay did into Jameis Winston, the investigation that we see so many do where they it's it's to get their own confirmation you know it, it's to confirm what they want to hear they don't go it doesn't seem like they went to jordan mcnair's parents and talked to him it doesn't seem like they went to many of the disgruntled players on the maryland team who did exist um friend of the show nicole auerbach did a big report last year um talking about a lot of the disgruntled parents and players on the maryland team who were so upset with Durkin. I mean, some of them walked out of a meeting with him. One parent told Nicole, we are worried that this narcissistic sociopath is going to come back. That narcissistic sociopath was Durkin. So they didn't go to any of them. They went to people who would tell them what they want to hear because, as I've seen many people say on social media, these coaches want to protect their own fraternity. They want to protect their own, and they care far more about that than they do any of the players. Yeah, and I think that wanting to protect their own, there's something particularly damning in that way. Like, you know, when around like Me Too, when there was stuff coming out about sexual harassment and people were like, well, if that's sexual harassment, then we're all, we've all been sexual harassers. <laughs> and people are like, it's yes, like, yes. <laughs> that's sexual harassment. It yeah. feels the same way. Like, well, if that's bad behavior and a toxic culture, then we've all done bad things and we all have toxic cultures. And it's like, yeah, you do. And you should all be held accountable. It just, I, oh man, like that parent's worry that this narcissistic sociopath is going to get hired again was the correct one, obviously. And there was a reason that they were worried for it because we know that this is how it works. And I just wanted to mention, I know that I like I have, you know, pretty set pattern of beats that I hit every time that we talk about this stuff, but I just feel like it's always worth repeating. There's something in our culture that we need to constantly investigate around the way that we imagine people who become coaches are good people. Like because they want to be coaches, therefore they are good in the way that we imagine that about teachers or doctors or something like so when then they're found to be doing bad things, making harmful choices, it's so much harder for us in this society to Im imagine them that way, right? Because we start 
they start from a position on a pedestal and we have to bring them down to like a normal level to even begin an interrogation of the choices that they're making and the cultures they're producing. And I feel like that's at play here. That the Keith Carter, the AD at Ole Miss, can release this kind of boilerplate statement about Durkin with all the same language that we always hear because it works, because it taps into an exact narrative that we are all used to consuming and the one that makes us feel okay about watching. Like Ole Miss fans want to hear that so that next season they can feel okay as they're watching football. And I mean, Ole Miss, y'all have lots of things to reckon with, (laughs) starting with your mascot and so much of your history that you must have to feel okay about as you're consuming. And this is just like another thing, right? And the other thing that I wanted to mention that just gets me every time is that these coaches are willing every single time to take credit when things are good. Every time that their team does anything well, their players are good people who make good choices. Uh, they When they win, coaches are willing to take all of that credit. I have made, I have molded this man into the person that he is. I have created the culture of this team that is a winning culture. Uh, all of that stuff. As soon as it goes negative, as soon as anything bad happens, it's like, oh, well, that's the other guy's problem, right? This wasn't, you will see it. You will see it from diehard Maryland fans. You, I'm seeing it from old Miss people now on social media that like, This wasn't Durkin's thing. This was Rick Court's thing, that the responsibility only goes in one direction, right? And anytime it's negative, it's never the coach's fault. Um, This was at Baylor, right? That Art Bryles apparently created a whole system where he didn't know when things were bad, right? Or Rick Pitino at Louisville. Like I could just, there's a list of the way that these people talk about it so that they're never in trouble when the bad things happen. But Lord God, they're going to take those million-dollar paychecks when things go well. There's something about that that is so disgusting. College football just – there's so much with the sport that is so bad. And it this – I feel like Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss hiring DJ Durkin is just the perfect microcosm of so much of that. All right, next we have Amira's interview with Jess McDonald. Y'all, I'm fangirling a little bit because it is now my immense pleasure to chat with the one and only Jessica McDonald, member of the U.S. Women's National Team, who's a World Cup champion and a NWSL champion. She's had an amazing year and done it all while parenting her super adorable son. And that's part of what we're going to chat about today. What is it like to be a professional athlete and a mom? And we're also going to discuss the launch of her forthcoming podcast that's going to center on a discussion about athlete moms. So Jess, welcome to Burn It All Down. Yes, thank you so much for having me. And I am so excited to have this little chit chat. All right, let's start with the launch of your podcast. So you have a forthcoming podcast and it's set to launch soon, right? Yes, and I'm so excited. I'm so pumped. Well, I'm excited to listen, but can you give us all some insight? What is it going to explore? What's the motivation behind doing the podcast? Uh, what can we look forward to? Yeah, so something that the outside world normally doesn't see is how us female athletes who are moms out there, how our lives are, you know, around the clock because we've heard bodies through so much. And then not only that, we don't just have our career but, you know, the next job that we have is going home to our kids and, and taking care of them and just sort of playing the mom role. 
And so I just want to show the world sort of the separation between the moms out there who are active and in comparison to those who are not moms that are active because, you know, I can go on for days, you know, sort of my experiences as a female footballer and, and being a mom as well. Just like a small example is I'll go to training and then, you know, I, we do recovery things and, you know, we have to do things and obviously take care of our bodies. And then I go home to my kid. And so my day is just, it's nonstop. Whereas, if I talk to one of my teammates, like, hey, what did you do yesterday? Oh, my gosh, after training, I was so tired. I took, like, a four-hour nap, and then I got <laughs> up, had a bowl of cereal, you know, binge watch Netflix, and, you know, just hearing these things, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I, I would kill for a nap. That that sounds so lovely. You know, so just little things like that where it sounds very intriguing for for people out there who, like, aren't parents but sort of see what we go through as parents, and it would just be really cool for the world to – sort of hear us out and, and just know the things that we go through and you know just being a parent isn't just like you're never a perfect parent and it's okay if things go wrong you know just just talk about you know problems that we have and positive things that we also have you know as both athlete and as a parent as well. Yeah. And one of the things I find most striking about the conversation is that like, we've certainly had portions of this conversation about like the second shift that mothers do in other arenas. Like I'm, I was in graduate school, um, parenting with kids and similar to what you're saying, I used to, you know, go home from the library and whatnot, and then be nursing and changing diapers and, and thinking like, you know, what would I do with time? Like, like a nap. Exactly. Oh yeah. <laughs> no. But one of the things I find so compelling about the conversation around athletic motherhood is so much of what you carry in terms of your profession is really within your body. And I could be pregnant and still writing a paper, but that changes a little bit when your job, so much of your job is wrapped up in your ability to go out and physically perform like to the best of your physical ability. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that aspect of athletic motherhood and like just walk us through like phys the physicality of it, like what is the limitations, what are the tensions, what are the requirements of your body in this conversation? Yeah, absolutely. So as you know, like we, we put our bodies through a lot and it, it takes a lot of discipline, obviously, to have some sort of longevity in your career if you, if you want that. And so when I was pregnant with my kid, I didn't stop training, actually. I, I was still training every day until I pretty much was really close to giving birth and so those are just the things that you know the world just doesn't see us doing like we still train it's still very possible to do so while pregnant and so everything was still high intensity I still did everything that I possibly could to stay in shape and not fall out of shape too much I guess post giving birth and so just being able to try and like get my body back into tip-top shape was probably one of the most difficult things I've probably ever gone through. And so just trying to continue to train, even after having my kid, you know, it's been kind of a long road, but obviously every day, blood, sweat, and tears here while trying to get my body back, trying to stay sane as a parent, you know, mm. you have a newborn and um, just trying to get the proper sleep, proper nutrition, just trying to do everything right. You know, I just truly really had to discipline myself and to be able to do so. And but yeah, it's it's been like it's been quite a journey. And so when I had my trainer after having my kid, just getting back into just getting back into shape, he had me use my son at the time when he was a baby as my weight. So mm. he was always at my workouts with me anyway. I used him as my weight and 
did squats with him, jump squats. And, you know, babies, they like to be thrown up in the air. And, you know, I had to squat and throw them up. It's like an upper body workout, lower body workout. So my trainer, he was really good at being able to incorporate my son into my workouts as well, because like he was, he was always on my side, by my side, obviously, when he was first born. And so um, just to be able to have him part of the start of my journey, the professional athlete and as a mom, it was kind of an incredible thing to obviously go through. It was, it was hard though, because babies aren't that light, you know, you're, you're working with like between, you know, 20 and like 20 and 40 pounds here, you know, just try to toss them up in the air and catch them and, you know, just little things like that. So that, that was kind of an incredible thing to do. Yeah. I appreciate your candor there. And I think we've started to see more glimpses of this, you know, we saw in Serena's documentary, her fight for, you know, to return to form after having a baby. But also, you know, we've seen Sid LaRue post uh, pictures of her playing and training at five months pregnant, friend of the pod, Olympic bloodletter, Elena Myers-Taylor posted recently a, a video, a badass video of her doing squats. And so I think we're starting to see a glimpse of it, but also because we aren't used to these images, you see in the mentions of of both of those anecdotes that I just mentioned, all these people who think they're doctors, like yelling at women for 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 training when they're pregnant. So, you know, I think we have a ways to go there. Absolutely. So much of this uh, recent conversation around athletic motherhood has been advanced by yourself and Serena Williams and Allison Felix. And I, I'm particularly interested in the fact that it seems to be Black women athletes who have really ushered in or publicized more kind of prominently brought the conversation to the forefront around athletic motherhood. Do you have the same read on this moment? Yeah, definitely. I feel like there's been like so many more lately and it's it's really a beautiful thing to see just to be able to obviously relate to them because we all know it's not easy. It's not easy being a parent in general, but being able to see female black athletes just kind of crushing it in their careers and being successful and also just setting a really good example for all the black moms out there because we know it's not easy. And so it's just really incredible thing to see them be successful and be able to do the things that they're able to do that we are able to do. Excuse me. I don't know why I'm excluding myself. Here. It's, just like, it's just like an, an incredible dynamic to just obviously be a part of because this is something historic. This is something that, you know, people just don't see very often, but being able to separate ourselves as, as moms and being able to succeed at the same time, that's a very beautiful thing. And I'm very blessed and grateful to be able to show that, to show the moms, like, look, if there's anything that you want to do or be in the future and you're a mom and you think that because you're a mom, you're going to have to change career fields. Absolutely not. Like go after what you want. And it's very possible. Yeah. It's going to be hard. Heck yeah. But hey, it's very possible. And we're just, we're walking testaments of that. And to shift the conversation a little bit, I saw a tweet that you responded to once where you said how many times you almost came close to retiring from the NWSL and somebody said, why? And you said, well, I can't survive and feed my kid off of that salary. And so in this moment, as we are getting ready for the 2020 draft and there's discussions of expansion and we're thinking about the state of the league, if somebody made you NWSL commissioner tomorrow, what changes would you implement? What policies might be put in place to help those in your position and for people in the future coming up behind you. Yeah, so I think overall we're we're lacking a lot of female athletes in our league and it's because of the pay. And not only that, but obviously a lot of the girls they want to be moms. 
And if you're a mom and you're trying to survive on a salary, it, it seems almost impossible. And I, I still don't even know. It was all a blur for me, obviously, being in the league and sort of scraping by, you know, and with the salary. But overall, I believe that, obviously, one, childcare is very, very expensive. And if you're going to pay us less, at least pay for that. I think that should just be a thing that the NWSL should be responsible for. And B, if we're traveling with our child, because we should have our own hotel room. And C, if we are on the road, I mean, pay for us to have a nanny for the game. You know, just little things like that, that it's hard for us to afford, obviously. And so I believe just sort of having our backs as moms in this league would just be very helpful because I believe that there could be more moms in this league. And I, th- I think that the competition would be incredible, obviously, to be able to see all these moms sort of just dominating on the soccer field. And, you know, we have very few. I can kind of one hand how many moms we have in our league. And so it's just sad to see because my friends want to be moms, but they're holding off on being a mom because, you know, the, the salary is not good. You want to make the national team. Like, you have this goal, but, like, because of our salaries and the way that we're sort of treated right now with with how our league is going right now, it's kind of making things impossible. So I think just taking care of child care, own room on the road, and just give us a hire a nanny to watch our kids during games. Simple as that. And, you know, I think that those of us who – our moms in the league can sort of speak up and out about that and try and put our foot down, put our feet down in order to do so, especially for the future moms that, that are going to be in our league. Yes, certainly. Cause it's also about retaining talent and there's a number of people who retire um, when faced with that choice. So absolutely. So you certainly had a hell of a year and your son was along for the ride the whole time. Heartwarming videos and pictures coming out of France when you won the World Cup and and then again when the Courage won the NWSL Championship. What was your favorite moment? What was your brightest moment of this past year? Oh my gosh, I think for me, man, for me, it's just sharing that moment with him because he's been on this journey with me since day one, literally, I was a professional soccer player for only one year before I had my son. I had him at a very young age as well. And I was 24 years old and just popped right back into obviously being a professional athlete once he was born. And so for him to just be on this entire journey with me since the day he was born and to share that moment in the World Cup, it was almost like a sense of relief for me. And it, it just got very emotional because he's seven years old and I'm just happy that he's at an age where he's going to remember all this. He doesn't understand the magnitude and he understands that like, yeah, mommy plays soccer. That's really cool. But he just doesn't understand the magnitude yet. But when he does one day, I just hope and pray that it's going to inspire him to be great or to do well at whatever it is that he wants to do or whatever it is that he wants to be when, when he's, when he's a, a man. And so I think just sharing that moment after winning the world cup with my son was probably one of the most memorable moments for me, at least. And I'm just happy that he's also going to remember it. But that was just a truly emotional, but happy. And I mean, just like an amazing moment for the two of us. Because, you know, in that moment, I was just like, oh my gosh, buddy, we did it. And I just, you know, just laid back and he was just framing me with confetti. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this is absolutely incredible. So I just think, Just sharing that moment after winning the World Cup with my son, it's definitely cherry on top for sure. Amazing. 
So it's a new year. You have January camp coming up. You're training with the national team, looking towards Tokyo. And of course, we have the launch year podcast. So what else can we look for for Jess McDonald for 2020? Yeah, I'll continue doing speaking engagements as well. I love doing more motivational speaking because I, I believe that my life story, my why is very relatable to a lot of people out there. And I think just sharing my story, it's going to help others as well to just sort of be inspired and try and do things with their life. And um, I just want to inspire the youth and just inspire anyone who, who comes across me. And that's sort of my goal also in, in 2020 is to just sort of hop around to universities, to high schools, to elementary schools, to just come and speak and speak some light into them and, you know, just, just sort of relate to them. And that's just one thing that I absolutely love doing is, is public speaking and just trying to motivate the youth. Well, Jess, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to chat with me and coming on Burn It All Down. It's a pleasure to talk with you. We're excited about your podcast and best wishes for a happy new year. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me, first and foremost. And, you know, it's always incredible to just show people how just badass moms are, you know. And so, yeah, just, just thank you so much for this opportunity. Last week, David Stern, who was the commissioner of the NBA from 1984 through 2014, passed away at the age of 77, a few weeks after suffering from a brain hemorrhage. Too young, 77, <laughs> I believe. Um, just It was a devastating loss to the entire sports world. And you could really see through social media and through writing how even though Stern was in, it, was in a controversial figure at times, he was very well respected and very well loved because he really loved the sport that he worked, he dedicated his life to. Well, there's a lot of places that we can go when talking about David Stern's legacy. And I do think that we're going to touch a little bit on all of them. Um, there's how he navigated race in the NBA. When he took over, a lot of white fans were not wanting to watch the sport. And... There's also how he handled Magic Johnson's HIV diagnosis and announcement, how he supported a gay executive in the NBA. But I really want to start by talking about his impact in women's sports, because without David Stern, it's very unlikely that there would be a WNBA. In the early 90s, he started working and championing um, Val Ackerman, a former women's basketball player who is now the Big East Commissioner. Uh, he got her to start working with her about creating a women's professional league. And after the success of the 1996 women's dream team <laughs> winning gold in Atlanta, there was enough momentum, and he believed that the timing was right. Of course, it helped that there was the ABL had just launched, was launching in 97, I believe, and was signing some of the best players in the world. And I think that David Stern felt a little pressure by that to get the WNBA off the ground. Competitions never hurt anything. So he did. And, you know, now we have the you know longest running women's team sports league 
in the United States and one of the most successful and sustainable that we've seen. And he really did champion it. Now, we can talk about some of the controversial decisions he made. We can talk about some of the ways that it would be great if the NBA did push it more. But the truth is that it takes men in positions of power like that backing women's sports in order to to push things forward. And that's what we ask for. That's what we're asking for right now from higher ups in, let's say, the NHL and the in US soccer. And that's the what we're so often not getting, the response and the enthusiasm back. And in the mid-90s, he did that for the WNBA. It was Lindsay Whalen who said, thanks for changing my life by creating the WNBA. That's what she tweeted. And, you know, I think he has changed a lot of lives by championing the WNBA. Uh, Jess, what what stood out to you about Stern's legacy? Yeah, I want to thank Lindsay for having us talk about this today because I actually didn't know very much before I started reading all the links that she sent me in preparation for talking about this today. And I was really struck reading. So one of the things that I read was a piece by Michelle Vopel written in 2014 uh, about how Stern was the mastermind behind the WNBA. And I think what I found so fascinating about David Stern and his take on the WNBA was how pragmatic it was. People use that word a lot with him. And I feel like in some ways, so much of the way women's sports is handled is not (laughs) so pragmatic. And so one of the things she wrote about was that they actually came up with a financial blueprint for the WNBA early in the 1990s. And then Stern waited. And he waited for the moment where he thought it would launch. And 1996, he was like, this is it. We're going to do it. And then, like you said, the ABL happened. And but he more pragmatic in the end about how to market these women and how to market the league and how to put them out there. And obviously, they won. The WNBA has been around now 20 more years than the ABL lasted. And, you know, it's interesting because everything I've read, it shows that Stern got that this was socially significant. And he clearly had that part of his life, right? He cared very much about Um, issues of race. Even again, there were controversial moments with that. Like you mentioned, there's this great piece that you sent me about Rick Welts and his like that he was a gay executive under David Stern and how supported David or Rick Welts felt by David Stern, um, how much he pushed to make sure that Magic Johnson could play in the 1992 Olympics, even though that he was out in HIV positive. It's just so interesting to me that Stern was able to balance between saying this matters that women, that girls get to see women playing basketball, but also like this is a business opportunity and we're going to go after this in the way that we go after anything. And he was, if nothing, just so great at building and expanding brands, right? Like that will forever be his great NBA legacy. And so I just, there was something about reading about it over and over again, where I was like, we are, I feel like that's what we're still missing is that part of women's sports like we talked about it this summer with the dare to shine uh at the women's world cup and it's like dude we are so far past this how are you people so behind and it feels like reading about stern and starting the WNBA that he was always in front that he wasn't ever operating from that kind of position where it feels like most male executives who are in charge of women's sports they just they fail at the pragmatic part of it they don't see the business in it that the potential there 
Yeah. And he was, I mean, he was a really tough negotiator. Last year I did, a, or I guess now two years ago, uh, for Think Progress, I did a piece on, you know, the, kind of the history of the WNBA Union uh, Players Association. And I talked to Pamela Wheeler, who was one of the first uh, executive directors of the Players Association, or the first, I believe. And she said, I was asking her about this negotiation in 2003 that I was reading about in which David Stern had threatened to shut down the WNBA if a, if a deal wasn't reached. And the quote she gave me was, David was always threatening to shut down the WNBA. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, you know, he was still very much a hard line negotiator. And I think that for some, that leaves a bad taste in their mouth. Like, I think when you look at David Stern and how he handled the WNBA. I think so much to the launch of the WNBA and how well the players were marketed at Mm -hmm. the beginning and how good the attendance was in the beginning. And I think a lot of that was David Stern. Like he, because he really kind of revolutionized the marketing of NBA players and took them from an era where they were not high up on the celebrity list to, you know, the dream team, you know, he was big behind the marketing of the dream team. You know, he really did know how to treat these players as brands. I think of the fact that, you know, I did not grow up watching women's basketball. I did not grow up in a family that watched a lot of women's sports period, but I knew who Rebecca Lobo was and who Cheryl Swoops was and who Dawn Staley was, you know, cause they were kind of cultural, you know, they had this, they were part of pop culture in a way that, you know, we don't see anymore. And I do think when I was reading back through it, I thought, wow, I bet David Stern was behind a lot of that. I do think he underestimated, though, how prevalent sexism was and how hard it was going to be to sustain. And so I think you started, like, I think the business side of him and probably pressure from the owners and things like that, because NBA owners still own 50% of the WNBA today, even, you know, I think ultimately that made him fall more on the pragmatic side. And, you know, maybe it ended up being, maybe that was the only way to survive, to keep pushing through at the time. Maybe there was... Um, you know, we we don't know exactly what was going on behind the scenes. But I think when I was listening to this, I was like, I wish that the WNBA could have received 15 years of the marketing push that they received in the beginning. You know, that David Stern marketing push. I wish that that energy had come through the league in that sort of patience. Instead, I think because they gave so much and because he championed so much at the beginning that then when he started to draw, when there, you know, when there was a drawback, it almost became pragmatic in a self-defeating sense. But I also, at the same time, I can say all of this and have all these critiques and at the same time realize the WNBA is still here, you know, and (laughs) there's a long, long, long way to go, but it survived through a lot of iterations. And, you know, maybe if it wasn't for David Stern, maybe, you know, we wouldn't have Diana Taurasi and, you know, becoming the highest scoring woman in the WNBA and, you know, becoming this legend and Sue Bird becoming this legend, you know, maybe they are only on national teams and then literally are for every other month of the year overseas, you know, maybe we don't, I mean, I mean, I don't know. Could the ABL have survived if it wasn't for the WNBA? Some say yes, but you know, the whole history of women's sports shows that. Yeah, probably not. Probably not. <laughs> yeah, and I also one other thing that I learned that I thought was interesting, and again, there are moments, and I 
I sent a note to Lindsay last night, like, how do I not know this stuff? It's just kind of amazing. So Adam Silver was handpicked by Stern to take over. And one of the things that Adam Silver did was he was one of the creators of the WNBA. Like he was one of the people planning the WNBA's structure and how it would all work. And that seems significant to me that like of all the people that were picked to replace David Stern, that one of the things was that this person had a direct hand in the creation of the WNBA. And I, you know, maybe the legacy for Stern is they need to like get back to what they were doing in 1997, like go back and re-embrace the way that they were handling. Like Lisa Leslie had a McDonald's commercial, I want to say, around that time. She was everything to me. I wrote about 1996, seeing those women play in Atlanta as a tall, really awkward 15-year-old and what they meant to me. And so like maybe the legacy... Like that should be how they carry it on is like, let's go back to that. And like, let's reinvest in these women in the way that Stern initially did and got the league off the ground. Like we, it's all so primed for that right now. Like, can someone remind Adam Silver of all of that? Yeah. Because he definitely cared enough, right? Like that was something that he was invested in. I don't know. That would be amazing. And I, I was just really, I, it was really cool to learn all this about David Stern and to see, like Lindsay said, a man with a lot of power and with a lot of influence direct it in that way and to take women's sport seriously, both in the social way, but also in the business way and really launch these women. Um, man, this is the year 2020, yeah. man. Let's do this. Like, and it's, it's another thing. Olympic we got year. Olympics here. Yeah. Another Olympic year. Like, let's do this. And I think, like, here's, here's the deal is when – you know, when I think back to when he put the same marketing push or very similar marketing pushes towards the Magic Johnsons and Larry Birds and Michael Jordans and and the Lisa Leslie and Rebecca Lobo, you know, when he did that, what he was adding fuel to it already a fire that was already ready to to burn. Like there, the, the NBA, even though it wasn't the behemoth it was now, there was a very steady base there, right? Like there were fan bases, there was infrastructure, there was legend legacies, like there was history. Like the base had already built up so high. So when you're adding that marketing push to it, there's a base that can sustain it, right? Whereas in women's sports, you were you were trying to you, you didn't have that base, right? Right <laughs> for the WNBA, and now maybe 24 la- years later, I'm not saying it's the same base that it you know that the NBA was 24 years ago, but we're, it's much more similar, right? <laughs> At least you have established markets, you have established you know, you know you have history, you have fan bases, and you have more awareness of women's sports and what it takes. And I just want, I just think that that marketing push could be so much more effective in the long term now, because it almost seems like we're much more ready for it. And the league is much more ready for it. And I hope that we do get there. I mean, I hope that that's what 2020 will bring. We are eagerly awaiting and we might, who knows by the time this publishes, maybe we'll know, but you know, we're waiting of the new CBA to be the, the WNBA collective bargaining agreement. We're waiting for that to come out. The new deadline is January 15th. And, you know, we're, there is a commissioner now. Kathy Engelbert seems to have a lot more power than the presidents who came before her. 
So let's just keep our let, let, let's keep our fingers crossed and let's kind of keep holding people accountable. Jess, is there anything else that you want to mention about Stern uh, besides the uh, women's sports in the WNBA? I just yeah, I really want people to go read this article that the AP wrote. Um, Seattle native Rick Welts will be forever grateful to David Stern. I was really touched by the story of Rick Welts when he worked for. David Stern in the mid 90s, Welts was very closeted, um, but his partner died of an AIDS related issue and he didn't tell anyone. And he put a little ad and or not an ad, like an obit in the Seattle newspaper and then flew home. And in the ad, he asked people to donate money to a new scholarship fund at the University of Washington. And he thought that he had done a really good job of like being very closeted in his in his work. And then this gets me every time. He went to the post office, picked up the envelopes from people who'd sent checks in his partner's memory. He opened them on the plane ride back to New York, and one of them was from Scarsdale, New York, and contained a $10,000 check from David and Diane Stern. He didn't even under- he doesn't know to this day how David Stern knew that about his life, found that information, and then donated that money in, in his partner's memory. And I just think that's such a beautiful story about David Stern, and there's just a lot in that piece that I, I really loved. I agree. And Rick Welts is now the president of the Golden State Warriors. So he is still very much a behemoth in this in the NBA. And I actually got to talk to him at the Athlete Ally Awards also. And that was phenomenal. And I really didn't know nearly enough about his story before I went into that interview and kind of wish I could do it again. <laughs> one of one of those. And I want to also shout out a New York Times article about how Stern navigated race in the NBA. Um, cause I think that, that that's literally the title, how David Stern navigated race in the NBA. You know, there were definitely some controversial decisions such as putting together the dress code for NBA players, which in the, you know, mouse, the palace and the way he oversaw things. And then a lot of his things like such as the dress code have very, even the even the black players themselves have very mixed feelings on them. You know, it was seen as, you know, a direct response to kind of hip hop culture and race when it was implemented and as a way to make the players more palatable, acceptable and palatable yeah. to the majority white fan base. And that's icky, <laughs> to say the least. At the same time, you know, David Aldridge of The Athletic was talking about how a lot of players now, they see their pocketbooks and they see how much more money the league has and they have a respect for the decision and they've learned to show their style in different ways um, that have them, you know, ranking as fashion icons and that there's more you know, they recognize it more as a business decision and one that has ultimately been good for their bottom line, which is obviously uncomfortable because it that directly relates to uh, how racist capitalism can be. <laughs> so, but, you know, it's just, it's interesting. There's so much to look back at it, it as legacy and we'll put some links in the show notes so that we can all kind of, there's there's a lot to hold together at once. And, you know, here at Burnell Down, we want to hold everything together at once. We don't like one to outweigh the other. All right, Jess, 
It's burn pile time. I know we have some burns stored up (laughs) from the holidays. So can you get us started? Yeah. So last month, Geneva Abdul had a story at the New York Times about 800 meter runner Anna Nagesa. Nagesa is from Uganda and is a woman with naturally high testosterone levels. In 2012, according to the article, a doctor for the IAAF, Track and Field's World Governing Body, which is now called World Athletics, apparently, told Nagesa she could not compete. She was a world, Nagesa was a world-class athlete at the time and a star in her home country. According to Abdul, Nagesa, quote, is an intersex athlete. She identifies as female and was born with external female genitalia, but also with internal male genitalia that produce levels of testosterone that men do. It's a complicated sentence. According to sports officials, that gave her an unfair advantage over most women in some events. So we've talked about this repeatedly on the podcast because of Castor Semenya the 800-meter South African runner who has been the target of much of world athletics bans on women with naturally high testosterone levels. If you want to know more about this, please go back and listen to Brenda's interview with Dr. Katrina Carcasis in episode 105. Nagesa, like Semenya, has naturally high testosterone levels, as I mentioned. But Nagesa's story took a different track because she underwent surgery to change her body to meet the regulations demanded by world athletics. Again, uh, let me quote Abdul's reporting. Nagesa, quote, said a world athletics physician, Dr. Stefan Berman, told her she needed to undergo medical treatment and was given surgery as her first option, a gonadectomy to remove her internal testes. World Athletics denies that Berman ever met with Nagesa or did the surgery, and Berman declined to give the New York Times a statement, but quote, Nagesa's medical record from the Women's Hospital and in- Women's Hospital International and Fertility Center in Kampala was reviewed by the New York Times and confirmed that World Athletics, then known as the IAAF, recommended a thorough medical examination, citing the high levels of testosterone in her body. The report states that after her testing in Nice, she had a gonadectomy in Kampala. The document states that her surgeon in Kampala, Dr. Edward Tamal Sali, did not start her on hormone therapy because he was awaiting further discussion with Dr. Berman. Nagesa says that since the surgery, she has had persistent headaches and achy joints. She did not receive postoperative hormone treatment that might have helped her body adjust. She has yet to run competitively again. She's also unable to go home to Uganda, where LGBTQ+, including intersex people, face persecution, possibly imprisonment, sometimes death. She applied for asylum in Germany, was granted it, and now lives in Berlin. Dr. Berman is now the director of the World Athletics Health and Science Department. The French Minister of Sports and Minister of Health opened a joint investigation into Nagesa's claims. She has told the New York Times she might file a lawsuit. I'm just not sure what there's left to say here, except that this is not what sport should be. Is this the so-called fair that people are talking about when they demand these athletes alter their bodies in order to compete? Is this really the lengths someone should have to go to level the playing field for others? And I know that I already wrote this on Twitter, but I'm just going to repeat it here. Sport and all of its rules, especially at the expense of black women and or women from the global south and at the hands of mostly white governing bodies and doctors in the global north, most of them men, can be incredibly cruel. The need to uphold the gender binary and to punish women and or non-binary people who threaten it in any way is something sport is going to have to reckon with in a meaningful way. It just has to. This is devastating. I'm just so sorry for all of these people who suffer in its wake. So today, I want to burn what has happened to Nagesa and the continued brutality of these regulations and the people who oversee them. Burn. Burn. God. Whew. Just going to sit with that one for a second. 
So for my burn, I want to talk a little bit about just another example of how we treat women's sports versus how we treat men's sports. So the IIHF under 18 women's championships, uh, women's world championships happened over the past couple of weeks um, in hockey. They happened at the same time that men's world juniors were taking place in hockey. While men's world juniors were broadcast live on TSN, you know, the big television network in Canada on multiple channels, the women's was regulated to a stream online with no commentators. (laughs) The first couple of days of the stream, it was literally a one static fisheye lens. It looked like the players were skating downhill. You couldn't tell who was who. And it, what? I mean, <laughs> watching it would make you seasick. Oh my uh, gosh. There was a lot of complaints over this, and they did improve the quality of the stream. Um, the IIHF said that the, you know, they had not been able to check the quality of the stream before the tournament, which seems like probably (laughs) a really bad oversight. Uh, So they did improve it by the medal rounds and you could at least see the players a little bit better and were not made sick, but there was still no commentary. There were still errors in graphics. I mean, such thing as the team names were sometimes wrong on the scoreboard. It was pathetic. And it was just such a stark reminder of how women's sports are treated versus how men's sports are treated. Friend of the show, Courtney Zito, uh, wrote about how the men's tournament, thanks to the IIHF and TSN, has become a must-see event. And it's become a destination viewing but that's because they put the effort into the production. That didn't happen automatically. Women's sports, meanwhile, nobody sees it worth it to do that. Despite all of that, ten, more than 10,000 people tuned in to watch the stream of the gold medal game where USA beat Canada. It was a thrilling game. And I think the fact that 10,000 people went searching for a stream online of an event that was given no marketing push and no production push proves that there is an audience for this and that it needs to be tapped into and that we need to be, we especially need federations and governing bodies to be treating the women with much more respect. It is 2020. We want to leave the fish eye streams in the last <laughs> decade. Burn. Burn. All right. It is time to talk about some of our badasses of, you know, the week, the holiday season, whatever you (laughs) want to call it. I don't have dates written down. Uh, We want to start off with some honorable mentions. Uh, Fallon Sherak became the first woman to beat a man in the PDC World Darts Championship before beating the number 11 seed and going all the way to the third round. If you haven't seen the videos of her winning these it's so great to find them. They're incredible. Uh I now really need to go see darts. Me too. Let's go. <laughs> we need to go, especially like in Scotland cuz oh my god, they are having so much fun in the audience. <laughs> Awana Rahman, who is 19, won Bangladesh's first women's bodybuilding championship. 
Congratulations. That is amazing. Uh, Serena Williams was named the AP Female Athlete of the Decade. No complaints here. <laughs> like we said at the beginning of the episode, we want to congratulate Allie Krieger and Ashlyn Harris for getting married. Also, Adriana Franch and Andy Sullivan, another U.S. Women's National Team player um, who wasn't on the World Cup squad, but is, is, is a member of the team. She also got married. She's also a Washington Spirit player. So we love love. <laughs> Carolyn Willett won the Order of Canada for, as the CBC described it, her contributions to sport in Canada as a decorated athlete, national team leader, and ambassador for women's hockey. Pakistani cricket player Sonia Murr, love her, was named the captain of Wisden Women's Team of the Decade. Wendy Renard, another podcast favorite was named the French Player of the Year in football in 2019. And of course, Sabrina Ionescu, Oregon Duck Guard, continues to rack up triple-doubles. She got her 21st and counting. And Jess, can I get a drum roll, please? That's a heavy duty by yourself. Okay. That was very good. So I want to give a shout out to Kayla Harrison, who uh, started the new year with the Professional Fighters League title and the $1 million prize. Anytime a woman in sports gets $1 million, (laughs) we like to shout it out. I want, as I wrote in Power Plays, I want women to start getting jaded by the amount of money they're getting in sports. Like I I want us to start saying things like, I think they're losing touch with reality. It's a little too much. So Harrison is a two-time Olympic gold medalist in judo, and she won the PFL Women's Lightweight Championship on New Year's Eve at the Hulu Theater in Madison Square Garden. She easily defeated Larissa Pacheco Pacheco from Brazil in the championship fight. It was televised on ESPN, and this pushed her pro MMA record to seven to nothing. I'm going to ignore the last sentence of this article from the Journal News because it mentions Mike Tyson. Oh, goodness. <laughs> We're going to go back and just say uh, congratulations, Kayla Harrison. And I'm so glad that you got a million dollars. Okay, Jess. What's good? I think I know what's good. Uh-huh. I've been world. waiting. I've been <laughs> waiting for this part. Well, I'm actually, I'm going to build to it. So I'm really excited because I'm, I just started a 12 week strength challenge at my gym. And, you know, I talk about my gym all the time. And so at the end of the 12 weeks, at the end of March, they're going to do what they call a push pull competition where we'll bench press and deadlift. It'll be a mock meet, like just to see how it goes. So uh, I'm working really hard on my bench press and my deadlift for the next 12 weeks. And I actually hope after that to start doing the uh, clean and jerk and snatch. Like I'm going to try stuff over my head, but we'll see how this strength challenge goes. And that sort of folds into, I'm, I just got a Fitbit for Christmas and I'm pretty obsessed with this thing. I don't feel the need to get the 10,000 steps. Like I just like one way or the other, but it just reminds me all the time to move. And I kind of just enjoy that part of it. And But I have actually been reaching my 10,000 steps because the week before Christmas, we started a trial with a rescue dog named Ralph. He, if you've been on my Instagram at all, I actually tweeted about it, tweeted about him as well. We are so excited about Ralph. We've now formally adopted him. He passed the trial period. He's perfect. He is all black with these dark brown eyes. He's 
a Labradoodle plus a Terrier. We think all three of those are in there. But he was paralyzed in a ditch. Someone found him. They brought him to a vet who had to fuse his hip back together. And he's doing great. He can walk on all four legs. He wants to run. Our vet thinks he's over a year old. So we are doing the work right now to build up all the muscle that he lost in his back legs because of being paralyzed and also having the surgery. But he wants to go. He really loves walking. So he and I have been going on these long walks. Um, I I got him a haircut this week because he has his curly hair and some of it was matted and So we shaved it all down to match his hair around his hip scar. And he has just been so energetic ever since. Like he is just bouncing around. He's so good that we're able to take him places. Our other dog had a lot of anxiety and she was very territorial. And we deeply miss Bailey. But the chill that comes with Ralph has been nice. So yesterday he went to a coffee shop. He went to a restaurant with us. It's just been really fun. And it's been great for our family. One of my favorite things in the whole world is that Aaron bought Ralph a bed and it's like dark blue, almost black. And at night when we're like watching TV and Ralph is on the bed, like you can't see him. I'm like, where do, is there a dog here? Because he just like blends so well and he's so still. Oh and I don't know, he has just been, he just, it was a really hard few months in our family. We lost our dog in August and our cat right before Thanksgiving. And we had them both for a really long time. And that was very hard. And Ralph has just really come in and and filled that hole in our family. And it's been lovely. So that's what that's what's good. That's I boiled it down to that. That's amazing. (laughs) Um, So me, I actually like I have not watched much NFL this season. I think um, the main reason is Cam Newton, I've talked a lot. Yeah. <laughs> just it was like I was really busy with WNBA playoffs. And by the time I was ready to f- turn on NFL and dedicate my Sundays to that, Cam Newton was hurt. The Panthers were on a free fall, and it's so hard to find their games. You know, I have to go to a bar usually or mm. find a stream here in DC to watch it. So I just didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was it's been the first year in a while, but I did look. I know how horrible it is. We talked about it here. But I, you know, NFL was still the first sport I really, really got into. And so I turned on the playoffs yesterday with excitement. And it was such a good day <laughs> to play football. It was just, it was, I mean, the the game between the two, we're recording this on Sunday morning. So we haven't watched the Sunday games yet. But Saturday, the wildcard game between the Texans and the Bills was the most ridiculous, entertaining football I've ever seen. Uh, Deshaun Watson is a walking miracle and Josh Allen is a walking hot mess. And I love both of them. So that was just, you know what? It was kind of fun to remember that sports can be fun, you know, Mm -hmm. a little bit, even when they're terrible. I don't know. For some reason, it was kind of an affirming day of remembering why I love the sport. And also (laughs) want to share this tweet from Simona Halep that really made me happy, but also because I want to say that we're thinking of everyone in Australia with all the fires that are going on. And of course, so the tennis, you know, Jess and I are big tennis fans and uh, it's, you know, the Australia part of the tennis season leading up to the Australian Open, which starts in two weeks. Oh my God. So a lot of players have been announcing that they will donate, say, $200 for every ace they hit in a tournament to wildfire relief in Australia. But Simona Halep tweets, well, guys, you know, I love Australia, but you also know I don't hit too many aces. 
So I want to help, and my pledge is this, every time I give Darren Cahill, her coach, a hard time in my box during all my matches in Australia, I will date, donate $200. <laughs> this way I will raise a lot more money. <laughs> That's really cute. So I just thought that was lovely. And then Elise Cornet, another tennis player, tweeted back at her and said, this gave me a great idea. I'll donate $200 for every drop shot. So, you know, it's I love to see these players donating to charity and helping out the wildfires. And we just want to say, like, we are thinking of all of you. Um, Jess's fitness goals is reminding me I'm going to get to Orange Theory Fitness this week three times. That is my goal. I did not get off to a good start for the year. So we can start again. And yeah, I you know what? I'm feeling motivated and excited for this year, especially for power plays. Got a few trips planned. In fact, hopefully by the time I talk to you all next week, I will have been on one of them. It's just not official yet. So I don't want to say, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited. It's going to be, we're going to make some good things out of this year. That's going to be rough in a lot of ways. Thank you all so much for listening to Burn It All Down. As I mentioned at the top of the show, please support our Patreon, patreon.com slash burnitalldown. You can also follow us on Facebook at Burn It All Down, on uh, Twitter, Burn It Down Pod. Our website is burnitalldownpod.com. If you go to Apple Podcast, you can rate and review, and that also will really help us in 2020. And that's completely free. So thank you from all of us, even our missing co-host, Dr. Brenda Elsie, Dr. Mira Rose Davis, and Shereen Ahmed. This is Jessica Luther, and I'm Lindsay Gibbs. And burn on but not out. I think that's what Brenda usually says.